In March 1933, 17,264,296 Germans voted for the National Socialist Party. 20,680,000 others cast their vote for Democrats, Communists, Christian Socialists, People's Party, etc., etc. Lack of unity among these parties opposing the Nazis proved fatal. I am Josh Bradlow, and Gad Beck is the person I've chosen as my hero of the resistance. So if, if we think back to before the Nazi period, and, and we think about um, the culture of particularly a city like Berlin at the beginning of the 1930s, really quite a remarkable time to be an LGBT person, um, particularly in Berlin. Um, we saw things like um, the Institute for Sexology that Magnus Hirschfeld set up in Berlin, which was really the first institute studying LGBT people and really talking about their lives and their existence. And in addition to that, we, we see cultural artefacts like Cabaret or Christopher Isherwood's Goodbyes Berlin, which are really expressing the culture of that time and showing just how forward-thinking it was and how liberated some LGBT people felt in Berlin. Of course, there was a still a huge amount of oppression, but we were seeing a real moment in time and place there taking place at the beginning of the 1930s. When we see the Nazis coming to power, it really had a huge impact on the social norms of German society in particular. We saw the, the dominant Nazi party articulating a vision of a German people and they conceptualised the German people as a body that needed to be kept healthy and any elements which were considered to be toxic or unhealthy or pathological, they felt needed to be cleaved or cut off from the body of the nation. And that, unfortunately, alongside Jewish people, alongside Roma gypsies, alongside Slavic peoples um, and political dissidents also included lesbian, gay, bi and trans people, particularly gay and bi men. And what we saw over the 1930s was a progressive dismantling of the legal rights, but also the lived rights of LGBT people, particularly in, in, in Nazi Germany, but also as the war developed in Nazi-occupied territories. And that had a tremendous impact on LGBT people. We saw tens of thousands of gay and bi men arrested for the, the charge of homosexuality. A high proportion of them went to either to prison or to, to labour camps and even to concentration camps as well, where tens of thousands were, were murdered um, in the concentration camps. And that had a huge impact because not only did it result in those lives being lost, those lives being taken from those gay and bi men in particular, but it also, the way that the Nazis did it, did it in a way which made it seem like being LGBT was completely anathema to being a German person. The, the kind of Nazi Aryan self-image was really grounded on this idea of virile masculinity and for whatever reason, and in common with how we've seen LGBT people treated throughout history, those people who didn't embody those gender norms were, were punished for who they were, and that had a really long-term impact. And I think one of the most haunting aspects of it is the fact that because homosexuality was only decriminalised more than a decade on from the Holocaust, it took a long time for those stories to come to light. 
we know that so many families and communities and individual stories were lost during the Holocaust because of loss of life, but we also saw that for many gay and bi men, they weren't able to tell their tale because even though the Nazi party was no more after the Second World War, they still weren't able to be themselves. I, th I think there has been some really positive work that's happened in the last few decades, and particularly um, as things like homosexuality have been progressively decriminalised throughout the world, although we still have a very long way to go in that respect. I think the decriminalisation of homosexuality has opened up particularly academic avenues for revisiting the Holocaust and thinking about who are the people who have been written out of Holocaust histories? What about the people who are both Jewish and gay? How did those identities interact? And I think there's been a huge amount of academic research on that. And even within the LGBT community, I think there are certain groups whose experiences have been overlooked. I think we have a larger bank of evidence when it comes to gay and bi men. But when it comes to lesbians and bi women, we don't have that same amount of detail. Likewise, with people who are transgender, trans people very much existed in Nazi Germany. And I think it's very likely that many, particularly trans women, um, were treated in a way as a kind of extreme form of homosexuality by the Nazi authorities. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all if the experiences they had were very much aligned with what happened to gay and bi men. It's clear that a lot of great work has been done to recover those stories and to uncover that history, but we need to go deeper and further. I suppose this is um, a central way that power was organised within Nazi Germany, was through the labelling of certain groups of people and the making visible and invisible of certain groups of people. So for example, if we think about Jewish people, there were laws that were signed by the Nazi government which forced Jewish people to, to actually make their own yellow triangles and sew them onto their, their kind of sleeves. And in the same way, for men in particular who were charged with homosexuality, um, when they were in prison camps, when they were in concentration camps, they were also required to, to sew and put on um, a pink triangle. And that went on their sleeve, and that singled them out as being homosexuals. It meant that anyone who came into contact with them realised the, the crime or the charge that they'd been charged with. And um, it's hugely, hugely stigmatising. And so that was really the way the symbol was used over the course of the Holocaust. Following on from that, we actually saw a re-emergence of it, particularly um, in the 1980s, um, in New York, actually. Um, 
and the pink triangle, it was flipped upside down and it was actually reclaimed as a, a symbol of resistance, of liberation and of queer struggle. Um, and that very much came about in the context of the HIV AIDS crisis of the 1980s and an organisation called ACT UP in New York, who are very much a radical queer organisation, who are really campaigning for the US government to take the AIDS crisis seriously, which they had very much not been up to that point, because they considered it to be a gay plague and therefore something that gay men were bringing upon themselves and therefore not worthy of scientific research. ACT UP really called on the US government to, to, to research these issues, to think about how do we make sure that gay and bi men are getting the treatment they deserve by health services, by medical research. And so actually what was a symbol that marks gay and bi men out as different, as deviant in some way, was reclaimed as a symbol of liberation, um, harnessing the power of the memory of the Holocaust linking the struggle of the HIV-AIDS crisis to the struggles that gay and bi men went through in the Holocaust um, and turning it into a symbol of liberation. And now since then we've, we've seen the pink triangle which has been inverted has really become a general symbol of queer liberation. And I think it's something that a huge amount of people, myself included, find a, a very affirmative symbol, a symbol which makes me proud to be different. And I think a really important principle there is that the pink triangle was used to mark us out against our will back in the Holocaust. Now we, we can articulate our own difference, our own freedom, our own identity, but it's our choice and we've done that by turning the pink triangle upside down. So Gandbeck was um, a man who was born in 1923 in Berlin. He had a German mother who was previously a Protestant and she had converted to Judaism before he was born. As a result of that, he was considered by the Nazis when they came to power as someone who was Jewish. And over the course of the 1930s, he was progressively marginalised from mainstream German society, both through being bullied for being Jewish at school which eventually forced him out of school, but also through his family being forced out of their jobs and their workplace and being forced out of his home eventually because he was Jewish. At the same time, he realised that he was a gay man. Being gay in Nazi Germany and Nazi Berlin is very much a challenging situation to be in. And so over the course of the Holocaust, it's interesting to see how his Jewish and his gay identities overlapped both to put him at particular risk from Nazi authorities, but also acted almost as, as a bridge to his liberation as well. At the beginning of the Second World War, we were seeing escalating persecution against Jewish and LGBT communities. Um, and in that context, Gad started a relationship, romantic relationship, with a man called Manfred Lewis. And in 1942, ultimately Manfred came to be detained by the Nazis. And there's a very interesting story about um, what Gad did in that situation where he actually, as a gay and a Jewish man, he decided to pose as a member of the Hitler Youth. And through that, he was able to get into the place where Manfred was being detained and he was able to rescue Manfred. Manfred was essentially given a choice of, of going back to be with his family in detention and essentially heading to almost certain death in the concentration camps in the East. Or he had the choice to, to kind of go off with Gad and leave his family, but also potentially go to safety. 
Unfortunately for Gad, Manfred decided that in the end he wanted to be with his family, knowing the huge risks that that involved. And so Manfred decided to return to his family in detention, after which Manfred and his family were deported to Berlin. And I think it's very interesting to see what Gad did in those circumstances, because from the accounts that I've read of him, he decided to channel all of his energy into joining a Jewish resistance group in particular. And so as part of that, these were very informal, very underground, very kind of ingenious resistance groups which operated in cities like Berlin. And in that role, he was delivering money, he was organising safe houses, and he was helping Jewish people in their attempts to escape Germany during the Second World War. And I think what is so fascinating about his particular story is that he was helped and he was able to do this resistance work because of the contacts he'd made already in Berlin's LGBT community. The LGBT community had been pushed underground by Nazi persecution throughout the 1930s, but because of the gay friends and the acquaintances that he'd made in this underground network of LGBT people, he was able to harness that to actually help his work to organise safe houses, deliver money, etc. And so, after the war, Gad actually said that being gay, while it may well have singled him out for persecution, by the Nazi authorities, it had actually helped him to survive the war by giving him that network. And I think that's something that we see both in the Jewish community and in the LGBT community throughout history, that um, both of those communities, which are very much overlapping, have been subject to horrendous persecution in different societies at different times, but they found a way to survive. And so much of that is through ingeniousness, through creativity, through being able to figure out how you can survive in the gaps and the cracks that exist in society, and also not only survive, but actually have a good life and make the life that you want to lead and to liberate yourself. And so I think it's incredibly, it's a really valuable lesson to learn from that. Even in the most incredibly challenging times, he was able to stay true to himself, to be himself and to help other people in the process. After the Second World War, he decided to emigrate to Israel-Palestine, but ultimately he decided to return to Berlin in 1979, where he became the director of the Jewish Adult Education Centre and also a gay rights activist. And I think there's something really powerful there that he decided not to kind of draw a line under his history. Um, he decided not to foreclose on that history and say, you know what, a lot of terrible things happened there and I'm just going to leave that place and leave that history behind. He actually stared that history in the face and he came back to Berlin. And in that role, he played a really transformative leading role in rebuilding the Jewish communities and rebuilding LGBT communities in Germany after the Second World War, which had been all but destroyed, really, by the work of the Nazi government. And so I think that is his, his legacy and his, what he has contributed to both of our communities is showing that he wasn't afraid to, to return to the place which had oppressed him so much, but actually um, he wanted to, to put the lessons um, that he'd learned through the Second World War into practice and rebuild those communities. I, th I think Gad teaches us that none of us are only one thing. Um, he wasn't simply a Jewish person or a gay person, he was both. And while those two attributes of his identity were things which singled him out for hostility, for discrimination, for abuse by the Nazi authorities, they were also, in many ways, the bridge to his liberation, 
when he was working for the Jewish resistance group in Berlin in the Second World War, he was able to draw upon his network of gay and bi friends within the Berlin underground LGBT scene. And he used that not only to help save himself, but also to save other Jewish people. And so I think what he shows really powerfully is that we shouldn't see, for example, a Jewish identity as being opposite or different to a gay identity. Actually, many people, myself included, hold both of those identities. And what is powerful is not only holding both of those identities, but it's the way those identities relate to each other. And I think that's what Gad really powerfully shows us.